I recognize it's late and it's warm in here and we have a full belly and I'm concerned of hamilicide. Fortunately, we don't have any tall windows that you could fall out of. We've been walking through the Mass, the liturgy, and we first talked about being a disciple of Jesus and following him. And then secondly, encountering his mercy and the forgiveness of our sins, and then encountering his glory. And then we talked about how he opens up the scriptures for us, just as the disciples on the road to Emmaus, who said, were not our hearts burning with desire as he opened up the scriptures for us. And then lastly, we looked at the offertory and allowing our lives to be an offering up to God, for our salvation and for the salvation of others. Today, I want to, or this evening, I want to reflect upon what's it mean to be the beloved disciple of John at the foot of the cross with the gospel we just read. And John, who is the beloved disciple, stands faithfully at the foot of the cross, the only of the apostles that are there. And Jesus, in his reward, gives him Mary and says he took her into his home. The actual Greek word here is he took her into his own being to take Mary into your heart. We'll talk about Mary more tomorrow. Uh, But today I want to reflect upon the sacrifice of the Mass, in particular the consecration and the holy sacrifice as it is. I don't know if you're familiar with this uh, recently beatified bishop of Germany, Blessed August von Galen. Anyone heard of this name, Blessed August von Galen? He is nicknamed the Lion of Munster. And he was nicknamed the Lion of Munster because he roared against Nazism. He was one of the few that, of the bishops at that time that spoke out against the errors of Nazism. And he basically has three uh, beautiful letters on against the Nazi regime, and one has to do with Catholic schools and how they were persecuted against the government. For those of you that are in education, I highly encourage you to read that. The second, he criticizes the Nazis for not allowing the Catholics to have public display of faith outside of the church. In particular, the removal of crucifixes from classrooms and public squares. And the third thing, he also condemns the Nazis for their systematic euthanasia of the Jewish people and the handicapped people. And anyways, he got a lot of fame for speaking out against uh, Hitler. And even some of the allies thought that this guy is going to kind of be on their side. But when he also even spoke out against how the Russians, when they came in and treated the Germans, he, I mean, he didn't find any allies on the Allied side, and he didn't find any allies on the Nazis. He basically spoke what the church said. We have to look out for the dignity of every human being, because every human being is made in the image and likeness of God. We're all called to communion. Well, in after the war... There's this famous picture, and maybe you have seen it. Blessed August von Galen is celebrating Mass at the high altar, 
at the Cathedral in Munster, the Cathedral of St. Paul, in 1946. And this picture is taken in black and white, and there's two servers over to the side, and then there's the deacon standing behind him, and then there's the subdeacon. You, as acolytes, would be kind of equivalent to, like, the subdeacon. You're standing behind. You're not actually up close to the altar, but you're there to serve. But what you see in the backdrop is the cathedral that's in shambles. Maybe you've seen this picture. It's the beautiful picture in this image that he is standing faithfully as the person of Christ, as the world crumbles around him. But he's not alone. He's got his deacon and subdeacon. Well, I think that's something for us to reflect upon that image. And it's something, the image I gave the picture to the bishop for Christmas in the book. And I said, it seems at times the church is crumbling around us. But it doesn't matter. All that matters is we have bread and wine, we have a priest. And then we have other people that can stand faithfully at the foot of the cross. That's what matters. And so you men are standing faithfully like John at the foot of the cross, even seemingly when the church seems to be crumbling at times, our families seem to be crumbling at times, or even our own life seems to be crumbling at times. It doesn't matter. Because John had been following Jesus for three years. He watches his own Messiah crucified. He is in danger of being crucified with him. But it didn't matter. He stood faithfully at the foot of the cross. Before the consecration takes place, we'll get into the liturgy now, is what's called the epiclesis, the calling down of the Holy Spirit. Epiclesis is the Greek word for calling down upon. And it's asking the Spirit to make these gifts holy so that they can be brought back and offered to God. Because nothing unclean, nothing unholy can enter into the kingdom of heaven. And so we call the Holy Spirit down to change these gifts. Psalm 104, verse 30 says, Lord, send down your spirit and renew the face of the earth. It was the spirit at the moment of creation that hovered over the waters to create the earth. And it's the spirit, the Holy Spirit, that hovers once again over creation at each and every mass. After the epiclesis, we have the consecration, the most important part. And the consecration literally means to, to make holy, to separate, to set apart in order for a holy or noble purpose. See, the Jews had this idea, this notion, theology of anamnesis. And anamnesis is basically making a past event present, like the Passover, in the sacrifice of the Mass, Jesus Christ, his sacrifice, is not just a memory like we remember the 4th of July. We remember his, the past event is actually made present. And so it's something different than just like a, a past historical event. And Protestants sometimes can say, well, you guys as Catholics, you guys are crucifying Jesus over and over and over again, right? Because you believe that that is a sacrifice. We're like, yes, it's a sacrifice. Well, the book of Hebrews says there is only one sacrifice. 
He offered himself once and for all, that there is no need to offer sacrifice day after day. How do you as Catholics reconcile that? So, well, is God outside of time and space? Of course, he's God. Well, if God is outside of time and space, and he commands his apostles to do this in memory of me, anamnesis, then God is truly present there. It is the one sacrifice offered once and for all. We don't have to recreate the sacrifice. We don't have to slaughter the lamb. We don't have to nail Jesus to the cross again. Every mass is a participation of that one sacrifice on Calvary where St. John stood faithfully. And so, this Mass, we recognize that it's the idea of Christians that goes not only, f- not only remembering a past and making it present, but even further. Because in the Mass, we say we look forward to the second coming. And so, in a way, Jesus is both, or all three, past, present, and future. He's outside of time and space. He is here truly with us. And so this reminds us of the many miracles that we've probably heard of growing up as kids, of the Eucharistic miracles, of how Jesus is still present. You know, Jesus says, I will be with you always, even until the end of time. And is is he using that word, I will be with you always, as kind of like a symbol? Well, I'll be with you because I said where two or three are gathered, there I am. Or I'll be with you because I'm going to send down my spirit. Or I'm with you in the word. No, th- when he says I am with you, he means substantially. That I myself, the person, the second person of the Trinity, both divine and God, I am with you always. Well, how do we take that then? If it couldn't mean that the Eucharist is truly the body and blood of Christ. If you remember some of the miracles, like the miracle of uh, Lanciano, right? Eucharistic miracles, they're, they're fascinating. We see these things, and scientists scratch their head, and people are dumbfounded about certain things that happen. Um, wasn't he here on World Youth Day a few years ago in, in uh, Poland? Okay, um, maybe some of your kids, grandkids were there. Um, World Youth Day happened in Poland in 2016. I highly recommend all of you to take a pilgrimage to Poland. It's a great place. It's cheap. The beer's great. And uh, it's totally Catholic. But um, before World Youth Day happened in Krakow, uh, typically they have what's called Days in the Diocese. And you basically, you go to uh, a person who hosts you, a family, a host family, and uh, you learn about their culture, about their food, about their Catholicism. And we had the opportunity to go to Warsaw or to this diocese of Lignitsa. And uh, this company that we were working with, I, I don't know why I, had, I made the decision, but I, I told um, the other priest, I'm like, we're going to go to Lignitsa. Uh, I've been to Warsaw before. It's just kind of an old communist city. It's not that pretty. Let's go to Lignitsa. It's more of a rural um, part. It's on the western border of Germany, western border of Poland next to Germany. And um, in Lower Silesia. And so we go to this diocese of Silesia, and it became mostly Protestant um, after the Protestant revolt. 
And then during World War II, it became known as Little Moscow. Basically, it was where a lot of the Russians set up their shop. And so it was a communist stronghold in the, up until 1991 when the communists fell. After communism fell, there was this church, St. Hyacinth in Polish, also known as St. Jack, um, that the Catholics got back. It was once a Catholic church, clear back in the 1600s, but then it became Protestant, and then it became shut down by the communists. But the Catholics finally get it back. And Lignitsa is one of the dioceses, few dioceses in, in Poland that's not very well practicing Catholics. I mean, it's still maybe 60% Catholic that are practicing more than any diocese in the United States. But in this church of St. Jack on Christmas 2013, maybe you heard about this story, there was a priest, Father Andre, and I had a chance to meet him. Actually, I stayed with him for a week. And he was distributing communion on Christmas. And, of course, midnight mass, Christmas, he probably had a long day. He dropped a host. Now, you guys are acolytes. What do you do if you drop a host? You pick it up. You can consume it. You can break it up and wash it down a sequarium so it goes directly to the ground. Or you could put it in a vial of water and let it dissolve. Well, he chose the latter. He put it in a vial of water and put it in the tabernacle to dissolve. Well, on January 4th, 2014, he goes into the tabernacle. He goes to pour this thing down the sequarium, but he notices that the host has a blood spot. He's like, uh, Bishop... We, we, got a, we got an issue. It's not a bad issue. We got, a, we got a really good issue, but you might want to come over here. The bishop, they agree that they're going to send this off to the scientists, um, one of the major scientists in all of Europe, to study it, this institute in Wroclaw. Um, and then they got a second opinion. It came back. This is what they discovered. The blood happened to be from the heart tissue of a person who died under duress. It also showed the age, a 33-year-old Jewish male. The blood type was AB, which is the universal recipient, like all the other Eucharistic miracles, meaning that Jesus can receive anyone. And then they also found out, which was fascinating, that they could only detect one DNA strand, meaning he only had one genetic from parents, which would make sense, right? Because he was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does not have DNA. All of Jesus's DNA was from Mary. And so science is just baffled by this. Who has only one DNA strand? We know Jesus does. And so here's the beauty of the consecration that Christ is truly present. And because he's truly present, we go into the part of the Mass called the mystery of faith. St. Paul in his letter to Timothy says, Hold fast to the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. Jesus tells us that the mystery of the kingdom of God has been granted to you. The mystery of the kingdom of God has been granted to you. That's what they used to call the sacraments. The sacraments were first called mysteries. They called the sacrament of baptism and the Eucharist mysteries. So what is a mystery? Mystery is basically something concrete that you can touch, you can see, you can feel. But there's something deeper there. There's something underlining. There's something beautiful there that you cannot quite put words to it. 
This is why when, every, when we have a mystery, we want it to be revealed. Maybe when you guys were married, your wives walked down the aisle, they had a veil over their face to show that women are a mystery. They're still a mystery to you, right? You still can't figure her out. This is why we put a, a chalice veil over the chalice. There's a mystery of what's underneath there. Or if you go to an Orthodox church or a Byzantine Catholic church, they have what's called the iconostasis, that you can kind of see what's going on behind there, but you can't see everything. It's a mystery. The bread and the wine are concrete, but there's something deeper there. It's a mystery. This mystery we know is change, that the bread and wine, transubstantiation, trans meaning a cross, substance, the substance is changed, but the characteristics remain. It still tastes like bread. It still looks like bread. It still smells like wine. It still has the effects of wine. There's a story that was told, and I don't know if it's true, but it's one of those that if it's not, it ought to be, about um, when John Paul II came to St. Louis in the early 90s, that they had this large mass, and they kind of overestimated how many priests would be there, and so they had a bunch of precious blood that was consecrated. Well, what do you do with leftover precious blood? It's not like you can put the host back in the tabernacle. You have to consume it. So the Masters of Ceremony tells one of the seminarians, you need to consume all of this. So he gives him the precious blood, the seminarian, right? And then after about 10 minutes of inter or thanks and different things after Mass, they decide, okay, now it's time for the final blessing. They process out, and as the seminarian's processing out, he's stumbling drunk with the blood of Christ, right? The effects still remain. Obviously, he's not guilty of any mortal sin, right? This is where St. Thomas Aquinas says, blood of Christ inebriate me takes on a new connotation. After the mystery of faith, there's the response of the people, okay? The response is a condensed expression of all of the mystery of salvation. Jesus' death, his life, his resurrection, and his future coming. So we say, we proclaim Christ crucified. This is what St. Paul says in his letter to Corinthians. We proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Or we say in the second response, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim your death, O Lord, until you come again. This is taken from Corinthians chapter 11. Or we say, save us, O Lord, for by your cross and resurrection you have set us free. This is St. Paul writes in his letter to Galatians, chapter 5. For freedom's sake, Christ has set us free. So stand firm. And do not submit to the yoke of slavery of sin. End quote. This beautiful response of the people, the summary of our faith. After the response, we have what's called the oblation. Oblation is basically... The prayer offered up to God. This is, we're using Eucharistic Prayer 3 as the model for our consecration. Eucharistic Prayer 1, a little 
too long for tonight. Uh, Eucharistic Prayer 2 doesn't really show a lot of the importance of the oblation. So, um, Eucharistic Prayer 3, the oblation offered to God. In the Old Testament, they were called and had to offer all these different sacrifices. A sacrifice was an oblation, oblation to be given up to God. The book of Leviticus, chapter 23, says, Besides the bread, you shall offer the Lord a holocaust of seven unblemished yearling lambs, and a cereal offering and libations of wine, as well as sweet-smelling oblation to the Lord. And so this offering that we have, we offer it up to the Father. See, God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten Son. He first gave us Jesus. But in the sacrifice of the Mass, we're offering Jesus back up to the Father. I mean, that's what love is. Love is reciprocal. We receive Jesus Now we're giving them back to you, Father. After the oblation, we get into what's called the Eucharistic intercessions. We first pray for the saints, maybe the saint of the day, the patron saint of the parish. And this reminds us that they are calling on us to run the race, just as St. Paul says, to run the race, so that we could see them in the crowning victory of heaven. We also pray for the Pope. And for the bishops, this reminds us that we as the church are not alone. That there is one flock and one shepherd. And the Pope and the bishop are reminders to us that all of us act only by, their, by the dignity that they, an authority, I should say, that they were given to us in order to celebrate the sacraments. Jesus established the church on 12 apostles. I cannot celebrate Mass unless Bishop Conley first ordained me and then secondly gives me the faculty, the powers to do so publicly. Then then we also pray for the Pope and the Bishop and all the clergy of the church. In the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 14 It says that they appointed priests for them in each church with prayer and fasting and commended them to the Lord in whom they had put their faith. I don't know if any time is greater than now for us to pray for our priests, our bishop, and our pope. And at every Mass, we do that. We also pray for the pagans during this intercession. We pray for, end quote, the whole world, and those who seek you with a sincere heart. We pray for all who have died, and the names of the living or the dead, maybe who this Mass is being offered up for. After we get through the intercessions, we come to what's called the doxology. The doxology literally means the glory. And so we could say, through him, and with him, and in him, All glory on heaven and earth is yours. This is taken from Romans chapter 11 when St. Paul says, For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be glory forever. And your response, Amen. Wait, is it Amen or is it Amen? 
There's a debate about this, right? <laughs> I mean, English-speaking world, we're the only ones that say amen. Every, or in America, every other English-speaking or every other, I should say, even in the Latin-speaking countries or Spanish-speaking countries or German, everyone says amen. And so it's actually the, the Hebrew should be amen. You know, it's like the word Amanda. We don't say Amanda or Adam. We say Adam, not Adam. And so the A is actually, uh, is not, it's not a long A, right? It's a short A. Amen. But I digress. Okay, finally, brothers. How do you and I become more like St. John? Faithful at the altar of God. You know, in the Gospel of Matthew, we hear the apostles going out and they're teaching and they're listening to Jesus. He first sends them out and they do all these different miracles and they come back. Um, And then he calls all the crowds together. And in Matthew chapter 14, verse 19, we hear about the multiplication of loaves. And he says, taking the five loaves and the two fish, Jesus looked up to heaven. He said the blessing. He broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, who in turn gave them to the crowds. So here are the four actions. Jesus takes, he blesses, he breaks, and then he gives. During the multiplication of loaves, these four actions show the love of God for all of humanity. And it's the same four actions we hear in the Gospel of Luke during the Last Supper. Jesus takes the bread, he blesses it, he breaks it, and he gives it. It's beautiful though, right? He doesn't just distribute it himself or have angels come to do it. He gives it to the apostles and they go give it to the crowds. Well, at every mass is like the multiplication of loaves. The priest acts in the person of Jesus. He gives the Eucharist to you to go give to the crowds, to the people. But backing up, Jesus' whole life revolved around these four verbs. See, Jesus first takes on the flesh of humanity, as St. Paul writes. He became like us in all things but sin. Secondly, he blesses the flesh of humanity by being baptized in the water of Jordan. Thirdly, he breaks the bond of sin and death by the breaking of his own body on the cross. And thirdly, Jesus gives us his flesh so that, as he says, those who eat my flesh will live forever. These four verbs, to take, bless, break, and give, are a summary of the action in which God shows his love for us. See, brothers, you and I are also called to participate in that life, death, and resurrection of Christ. We are to take our roles at the altar with devotion, with seriousness, with reverence. We are to live the life of being blessed. We are to live the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the merciful. 
Blessed are the pure of heart. We are to break any sins, vices, addictions, or habits that we might have that do not lead us to union with God and with one another. And you and I are called to give, to give of our hearts, to give of Jesus to people, to give the Eucharist to people who are homesick. See, when Jesus told the Jews he was the living bread that had come down from heaven, their response to him was what? Sir, give us this bread always. Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger. And whoever believes in me will never thirst. See, that, the words of the crowd still echo in our culture today. We want something to satisfy us. You guys remember the Super Bowl's coming up, right, in a few weeks? Remember that Super Bowl commercial a few uh, years ago with Betty White? And she's playing football, and she gets tackled, and she's kind of complaining. And um, the, the tagline is, you're not you when you're hungry. Snickers, it satisfies. And that's like us as Christians. We're not satisfied until we could actually taste the body and blood of Jesus Christ. It satisfies. This is why they can say, give us this bread always. We recognize that we're going to need to be satisfied. And this bread that they desired goes back even to the temple days. Remember the different Jewish feasts, the three main feasts, the feast of Passover, which we've talked about, the feast of tabernacles, also known as booths, and then also the feast of Pentecost. Well, during these three major feasts, the priest, the Levite priest, would go into the, the temple and they would have what's called the showbread there. It was the bread that reminded them that they were fed the manna in the desert. And he would take the showbread out of the temple, which was something remarkable because no one could see the things in the temple except for the high priest. And he would take the showbread out three times a year and he would hold it up for all the people to see. And he would say, Behold God's love for you. Behold God's love for you. Brothers, we can say that today. Behold God's love for you. When you are distributing the body and blood of Christ at communion, and when you hold up Jesus and say, The body of Christ... You're essentially saying, behold God's love for you. What a great gift to bring to people who are sick or to distribute at Mass. You and I are called with Jesus to take this bread, to bless it, to break it, and to give it. The bread of our own lives. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.